That makes some of us. Um, so full disclosure, I, I told the board this, I've told my wife this, I've told our people this. Uh, my wife's going to get after me for talking about myself at the very beginning of the sermon, but this is what's about to happen. So if you would please pray for me as I'm going through the book of Revelation, I'll tell you why. Um, the book of Revelation is, uh, is one of those that's, that's difficult be, for several reasons. One, it's difficult because uh, of, of who I am. I, I, don't, I don't believe myself to be some kind of uh, brilliant person. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's part of it. Second thing is, um, it's just a difficult book for, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, thirdly is there's a lot of, there's a lot of good, well-meaning uh, preachers and teachers who have said a lot of things about it, and you maybe have heard a lot of things about it. And so the things I might say might be different from the things you've heard. And so that causes me a little bit of, of stress and anxiety. Um, but uh, all that to be said, if you would just continue to pray for me, um, I, I promise to you, um, I will do the very best of my ability, and I will trust that the Holy Spirit will make up for any of my lack. Is that a deal? So you pray for me, and I can promise you that, okay? Um, but let me give you some background of the book of Revelation. So um, this was written by John, the apostle of Jesus. Um, people have thought, scholars have thought throughout history, either the 19th or 20th century, that it was written in 66 to 68 AD under Nero, the Roman Empire. However, for different reasons, uh, we've kind of decided that maybe that's not right. Maybe it's more 81 to 96 AD under uh, Domitian, uh, the Roman Empire Domitian. Okay? Um, so I'm going to read to you a couple quotes here before we jump into anything I have to say about it, and you'll see why here in just a minute. So a key ingredient in God's decision to send the vision to John around AD 95 may have been the growing influence and power of the imperial cult in the providence of Asia. Now you're going to, that's going to be of, uh, uh, please be reading through the book of Revelation as we're, as we're preaching through it. I think that would be of great benefit to you um, as well as to me. Uh, so he's about to send uh, the letters to the seven churches. Those churches are located in Asia. And that's part of why this commentator is, is talking about that. So uh, this refers to the worship of the emperor as a god. I don't know if you knew that or not, but Caesar at one point was hailed to be a god, just like the Egyptian. Uh, you know, it tends to be the case uh, that these guys who are in dictatorial power, if they're there long enough or they have a succession of people long enough, somehow we attribute to them deity, right? And I think that's partially their own uh, uh, neuroses, you, you know, of, of themselves and stuff like that. But it's also human nature. We look for something to worship. We look for something powerful and greater than ourselves to worship. And unfortunately, the Romans thought that of their, their uh, Caesar. So, so for many years before this, Romans had refused to allow their leader to be regarded as a god. They even disliked dictatorship and heartily, and, 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 and didn't like that. In the first 700 years of the Roman Republic, the nation was led by um, consuls who governed a year at a time, and then they were chosen by popular vote. That all changed when Octavius was victorious over Mark Anthony, and he established the Roman Empire. He named himself Augustus. He declared his uncle, Julius Caesar, a god. Don't you wish you would have paid more attention to world history like I do? I mean, the, the good news is you can Google all this, right? And you can find out all that you want to know. So most emperors refused to allow themselves to be called gods until after they died, such as Tiberius and Claudius, uh, which is actually kind of ironic, isn't it? So you can't call me a god till after I die. Well, that seems very ungodlike uh, to die. I mean, uh, so, you know, whatever. Um, but, uh, but this began to be relaxed in the time of uh, domination, or dom Domitian is probably how you say it. 
Also, cities began to compete to be allowed uh, by Rome to build temples to the emperors and to be labeled as uh, neakros, or the temple warden city. That's what it was. So, um, whatever. Greek, yeah. Anyway, so it's a city of temple warden. Okay, so it's a special name for that. So, um, the first to erect that was Pergamum in AD 29. One of the churches, right? So this is why this is important. So of the cities addressed in Revelation, at least Ephesus, Pergamum, and Smyrna were also called to this honor. Oh, now some of this making sense as we are beginning to start the text, right? Okay. So how do we interpret the book of Revelation? Because there's, there's basically four main camps, okay? I'm going to tell you what the four main camps of interpretation are too. I promise we'll actually get into the text today, but this is, I feel like this is stage setting that needs to take place. So how do we interpret the book of Revelation? I'm going to read to you another quote, okay? We must also be aware of the overall schemes of interpretation that have been adopted through church history. This is critical for the meaning of the book changes with each interpretation, okay? So depending on which school you're in might depend on how you view and interpret these different things that are happening, right? Like, what does that thing really mean? Or what does that thing really mean? Or all that kind of stuff, okay? So first, the historic approach understands the sections of the book as prophesying the successive periods of world history. For example, many think that the seven letters prophesy seven periods of the church age. Okay, You may have heard of that before. If not, you have a framework to put that. That's the historical approach Okay, throughout history. Second, the preterist view believes the book describes the present age in which John lived. Either the first century uh, situation of Roman oppression and Christian uh, marginalization or the fall of Jerusalem as divine judgment for Israel's apostasy and rejection of their Messiah, Jesus. So let me clarify. Historic approach, uh, all these things are being fulfilled as church history continues. Preterist, no, it's all being fulfilled right then. He's writing to the things that are happening right then, okay? Next view, the idealist school. You might already be able to guess where this is, right? But the idealist school argues that the symbols of the book do not describe historical events, but timeless spiritual truths, thereby presenting a general description of the church age between Jesus' first and second comings, rather than a specific prediction of a future events at the end of days. So what these guys would say is, kind of like what I I just read, but all these symbols symbolize things that are happening throughout church history as, as a whole, Uh, not just a specific time of events. Fourthly, the futurist understanding sees the visions as detailing the events that will take place at the end of history when Christ returns and God ushers in the end of the present age. Now, if you're anything like me, you may be thinking to yourselves, those names don't seem to match up with what they said. So like, you're telling me the historist one deals with this. Okay, I tell you all that to tell you this. You ready? So all of those are different interpretations throughout church history, okay? Some of them you might be more familiar with. Some of them, you yourself might be like, yeah, that's the camp that I fall in. That's that's how I would interpret Revelation. That's how you, Patrick, better interpret Revelation if you get it right, right? So, So I've told you all that to read this next quote to you. The author himself, John, could without contradiction be preterist, historic, futurist, and idealist. That clears it up for all of us, right? So now we have a definitive uh, interpretation that I can give you that we all know is the right one based on that. And so 
Now, unfortunately, if you're honest with the text, if you're honest with church history, if you're honest with uh, keeping it within context, right? So if you, if you ever go to seminary like the one I went to, something they're going to drill into your heads over and over is something called context. And what they say is context is king, okay? Context is king. And so we need to understand the historical context, who John is, who he's writing to, when he's writing to them, what he's writing to them, and in the manner of which he's writing it. All those things matter, okay? We also need to understand then the genre and the type of literature that he's writing and how that works out in not only Israel, but church history and historical or, or, or futuristic history. Does that make sense? And so, unfortunately, we have to take all of these views, but also, fortunately, I guess, um, the anticipated future consummation, he revealed principles that operated beneath the course of history. So, all that to say this last quote, and then we'll get into the text. You ready? Revelation is a book that has puzzled, confused, and frustrated the minds of the best biblical scholars. Neither John Calvin nor Martin Luther wrote commentaries on it. So, there you go. They didn't even deal with Revelation, okay? That should tell you something. If you know anything about church history, Martin Luther and John Calvin were like, nope, okay? So, Luther was quite harsh in his evaluation of Revelation, which, and this is what he said. He said, my spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. There is one sufficient reason for the small esteem in which I hold it. He says, Christ is neither taught nor recognized. Now, I think from this very first sermon, from the very first eight verses of Revelation, I think that you probably should agree with me when I say, I think Luther was, was very wrong in that quote. Which is great, because that means that some guys who really know the Bible well and have a long-term history of being good expositors, like, that they can be wrong. So that gives me hope, too, that it's not the unforgivable sin. And so if I'm wrong, we can high-five on the way up. And when, when everything shakes out, we can high-five together, and you can say, you were wrong. And I'd be like, I know! That was great, right? And so it's okay. It's okay. And so as we get into the book of Revelation, uh, let's give one another grace. Let's understand that it can have all these different kinds of interpretations. So I will, and we will, do our best to let the text itself speak, and I will do my best to give you every argument for each view as we go through that so that you can make your own educated decision, because I do not want for you to have John's view. Well, not this John. I want you to have this John's view, the Holy Spirit's view of Revelation, okay? Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for all of your scriptures. We thank you for this book, for the hope that it gives us, the hope of your return the hope of your consummation, the hope of your vindication, of your care, of your grace, of your forgiveness. We thank you for the book of Revelation, God, and we ask that you would, as your word says, as we're soon going to read, that you would bless us in the reading and in the hearing and in the observing of all that is in it. We ask that in your name and for your glory. Amen. Okay, so if you're a note taker, uh, we're going to be in 1 through 8 today, all right? The titles of Revelation, so if you miss one and you want to go back on our website and find them, the titles are going to be very easy for you to find. It's going to be the 
passage of scripture that we've been over. Okay, so if you're like, oh, I missed that one. What's the title? It's whatever the scripture is. Okay, so Revelation 1, 1 through 8 is where we're going to be. You can pull that open in your copy of God's word if you want, or you can read with me on the screen. The first point that I want for you to see is the gravity of this book, which I, which I may have already sold you on, but there's more. Okay? So that's your first point there. This book is has gravitas. Here's what the word says. Uh, in the, yeah, it's all on one screen. Good, because um, Nick's not here this morning. So, um, so the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Here it is. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. So, the gravity of this book. Firstly, I want to talk to you about the significance of this book. Now, we did talk some about that when, when we talk about just the difficulty of interpretation. But I don't think the difficulty of interpretation is its significance ultimately. I think, unlike Luther, I think the significance of this book is the person of Christ. And I want to point you to the very first thing it says there. What is this? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What do I think that John means by that? This is what I think that means. When Jesus came down the first time, we did not see him as he ultimately is. Now, was he fully God and fully man? Yes, so he was fully God. However, Scripture tells us, right, he, he, he basically took off his glory, humbled himself, right? It says humbled himself even to the point of the cross. So he took off his glory and took on humanity. And so all we saw, not us, but, you know, all they saw was a shadow of that who he truly, of that which, of, of, of whom Jesus truly is. And so when John uses the terminology revelation, the word revelation literally means the, the, the unveiling. In the Greek, by the way, the word for revelation is uh, apocalypse. That's, that's the English transliteration of that, right? So it's uh, uh, apocalypse. Uh, you'd say that with, a, I guess, a more uh, Mediterranean accent, and then it's, you're closer, okay? But that's the word there, and it's this idea of unveiling. And so what we see in the text, and this is why I'm like, man, Luther, I love you, but I just think you've missed it. This is the unveil. Just if you get nothing else out of today, when you read through Revelation, I want for you to keep that in the, front, the, the forefront of your mind. This book is, is the idea of the curtain in heaven, so, so to speak, being removed. John, oh, what, what a blessing this is. And, and, and by the way, remember this. John, like me, is a limited human being. And so the words that he's using to describe what he's seeing, do not compare with that which he actually witnessed. We have to remember that too. And so he's, he's borrowing language of the time, all right? And so what he's telling us though is, this book, this book is gonna show you who Jesus really is. That should excite you. So that's one significant. Another thing that makes this book significant is that it says that this revelation of Jesus we see a chain of events happening here. This was given um, 
by God to Christ, right? <clears throat> and so, okay, so God the Father, who orchestrated the whole thing, gave this revelation of Christ and told him, okay, you go ahead and you tell them. And Jesus delegated that to an angel that was going to come down and then tell it to John, and now John tells us. Now, the problem with this, you might think, is, hey, I've played the telephone game. Things get messed up, okay? Uh, because I know we start with saying, like, you know, some kind of thing, and you end up with, like, purple monkeys. And that, that wasn't purple monkeys. It was something else. Well, that's not what's happening here in Revelation, okay? So you can rest assured with that. This is divinely given, and it's divinely orchestrated. It's divinely protected. So that's another significant portion of this book. And also what I mean by that is when we talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ, it says this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which Jesus Christ is giving. So I want you to think this too. All of the stuff that John is writing in this book, in essence, is a direct word from Jesus to us. Everything that John is seeing, that he is told to write down, that he is writing down, is given to him as Jesus is revealing that to him. So it's not only an unveiling of who Christ is in his glory. It's an unveiling of everything that Jesus wants for John to know and to share with us. And, by the way, with first century church, with the ones in Asia that he's about to write those letters to, okay? Seven times is a big number in Scripture. As we go through Scripture, the significance of numbers is going to come up. Um, the difficulty with the significance of numbers is trying to parse out and decide when, it's, when a number is just simply a number and when a number is actually pointing to something else. I can tell you for sure, as you read through Scripture, you're going to see the number seven happening a lot. Throughout the whole book of Revelation, the name of Christ happens seven times. The term of slaves and servants, which John is calling himself, and which, by the way, he uses that term for the church as a whole. So we're slaves and servants as well of God the Father. Uh, slaves happens seven times. So there's a lot of numerology that's going to happen in here, too, that's also significant. So that's part of the significance. I would say the main significance of this book is the gravity that holds is the revealing of Jesus Christ. But this book is not only uh, gravity-ish, gravitas, uh, for its significance, but also for its singularity. No other book in Scripture has uh, the fullness of the picture of futuristic prophecy that this book does. It is, it is one of a kind. It is in its own genre. This book is what started the genre category of apocalyptic literature. And you can see why. I mean, the name is The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's also very singular and therefore full of gravity because it is the only letter that we have that has this statement in it. You ready? Verse 3. You can see it up there. I'm going to read it for you. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So normally we don't do something here at Allegan Bible Church, but we're going to. Normally. I'm just the one reading the scripture, and then I go and I preach over it. With this book specifically, I don't want to be the only one doing that. So I got the blessing first, neener, neener, I guess, right? But I want to open that up. And so here's what we're going to do. <clears throat> I'm going to start with asking the other elders and then the deacons 
to read sections of Scripture when it's time to read those sections of Scripture. And then after we get through them, I'm, I'm going to open it up to you all too. Because I don't know about you, I believe the Word of God. And it says right here, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words. So, next week, I'm putting a sign-up sheet out. And if you put your name on the sign-up sheet, I'm going to let you read Scripture. And when your name, not let you read it. That sounded stupid. Anyway, you know what I mean. And then what I'm going to do is the week before, I'm going to tell you the text that, that I'm about to preach on so that you can read through it yourself. And if there's any weird words or things like that that you need to look up and, and figure out how to say that so that, so that you can read it and, and then you won't be embarrassed if you mess up. But, but, but just so you know, be aware of this too. Uh, I mess up all the time, so it's okay. So if you do mess up a word, that's fine. And here's a secret to Bible reading. If you just pretend like you know what the word is, People will think you know what the word is. Like, they will think to themselves, that's not how I've heard it before, but maybe he's right because he said it with such authority. That must be how you pronounce that. And it's like, yes, that's right. Um, okay. So it is singular in that it is the only book of Scripture. Now, now, we know that this would go for all Scripture. Blessed is the one who reads it and who keeps it and all those kind of things. But blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy Blessed are those who hear, but then you also need to understand here, and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. That's another thing that's singular about it. And so it's not only those who read, but it's you all too. So whether you choose to read or not, that's okay because you're still hearing it. And so I would plead with you to also keep it. Throughout the book of Revelation, there's going to be seven blessing statements that are going to happen. One in 14, if you're a note taker, you can write these down. If, if not, that's okay. We're going to get to them because we're going to talk through the whole book. One's in 14, verse 13. One's in 16, 5. One's in 19, 9. One's in 20, 6. One's in 22, 7. One's in 22, 14. I'm not going to read those again. You can go back and pause the video anytime you want, okay? So we need to understand, first and foremost, that the gravity of this book is the revelation of Christ. In this book, we will see Christ more full uh, as he truly is. And even though we're going to see him as he truly is, even then we're still falling short because John is a mere mortal seeking to use mere human language to describe the Lamb. And so I hope, if again, if you get nothing else out of today, and you might not because we're already getting short on time. This might be a two-parter. I hope that you love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, the book of Revelation is a great book for you because it shows you more and more of who Jesus is in his glory. And I think that's something that cannot be anything but edificacious for us, especially as we think about the book of Revelation and we understand it's written to people who are about to go through and who are going through persecution. We need to know who Jesus is when that stuff happens. And so the gravity of this book is the revelation of Jesus. Okay? The second point is the guard in this book. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm glad that you asked. We're going to read together Revelation 1, 4 through 6. This is what it says. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits, there's one of them, who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood 
and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the guard in this book, I want to talk to you about that. Firstly, the the substance of this guard, as you see it there in verse 4, it's grace and peace. This word order, grace and peace, always happens in this order. You know why that is? You cannot experience peace without the grace of Christ Jesus. And so John continues that tradition. Also understand the substance of this. He's writing to the churches that are in Asia. He's writing to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And as I just read to you, right, and we have to remember this too, so this is all kind of contextual. Where is John right now? He's, he's going to tell us maybe next week. It depends on how long each one of these go. But my plan was next week, he's going to tell us he's on the island of Patmos, right? Why is John on the island of Patmos? Because he's a Christian. He's being persecuted for his faith. So he is shipped off to this island. So he already knows exactly what he's talking about. He says, to the churches, I want for you to know grace and peace. I want for you to have the grace of Christ Jesus so that when uh, Domnition uh, comes, when his people come, when the persecution starts, it was already there under Nero. I don't know if you know anything about church history. Nero used to dip Christians in oil and then light them on fire along his, his walk. He used them as human torches just because they were Christians. And so John is writing to the people who are about to suffer and who are suffering this persecution. But he's also writing to us. He says, brother and sister, grace to you and peace. And I want you to see the source then. So that's the substance, grace and peace. That's the guard of this book is is the grace and peace. That's the substance. Where does it come from? The source. It says here in the next thing that it is from the father. Well, it doesn't say the father. I'm I'm interpolating what he says. Here's Here's what he says. From him who is and who was and who is to come. Who's that sound like to you? Well, what he's talking about here, I believe, is God the Father. And why do I think that? Because the next thing he says is, uh, from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. I think what he's talking about here is the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Now, some of the language he's using is purposeful, because do you know who else Rome would say who is, who was, and who is to come? Uh, Zeus. So this is a slap in the face to the rest of Rome, who put him on this island in the first place, to say, yeah, yeah. You say that you serve, you know, the God of thunder. Well, I serve the God who created the thunder. <laughs> I serve the God who created not only the heavens above, but the, but the earth here and, and, and the, uh, the under the earth. Uh, the, the seas and all that are in them. The, the heavens and all that are in them. The earth and all that's in it. I serve the one true God. He is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Next thing he says, there is the seven spirits who are before the throne. Now, I, you might be saying, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I don't know that there's seven Holy Spirits, so what are you talking about there? Again, so here's where numbers kind of does matter. So there's two things here. Seven is the idea of completion, right? That's, that was seven days it took to do, well, if we're true, six days to do creation. The seventh is when he rested. So that was the completion of his work there. And so seven here is the fullness of the spirits that are before the throne. The other thing is here is, Where else can grace and peace come from? And why would just seven random spirits not? uh, He's putting them in equality with the Father and with the Son, which means it has to be the Holy Spirit. So these seven spirits, these perfect spirits, 
The other reason we're going to see that here is in just a little bit. Uh, he's writing to the seven churches. This, the Holy Spirit goes. It's John's illustration of God's Holy Spirit is perfectly with us as the church, you as individuals, all the time. He is not as Zeus is. Zeus, right? I'm talking about him like he's real. Zeus falls asleep. Zeus can't always hear. Zeus goes on vacation and then can't see or whatever. What John is saying is our God is not like that. Not only do we receive perfect grace and therefore perfect peace through him, but he is perfectly with you at all times by his spirit. And then lastly, then the source that he tells us here is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now, let me pause there for a minute. So, the substance, grace and peace. The source from the Father, the Spirit, the Son, right? He gives them some information. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He gives us some information about Jesus that you may already know, but John wants to cover it with you again, so I'm going to cover it too. By the way, are you beginning to see where... um, some preachers, like there's one in particular from down in Texas, it took him three years to go through Revelation. Which would be fine with me, but um, here's what he says. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, he who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Okay? So Jesus is the faithful witness. What does he mean by that? Well, when he came down, he bore a true testimony to who the Father was and who he was. He bore a true testimony as to how we could enter into a relationship with God the Father. He said, I am the way, the truth, and and the life. Nobody comes to God through me, right? That's what he said. I am the light of the world. He said, I am the door. He said all these things. This was a faithful witness to how we can have a relationship with God the Father. Also, then, if you think about this, if this is the revelation of Jesus Christ and he is the faithful witness, what can we say about this book? That this book is also, if you didn't think so already, this book is also true because he is a faithful witness and he is giving the revelation to John. It says here that he is the firstborn of the dead. That is the promise that he gave to us, right? That because of his resurrection, he has conquered uh, death and Hades and he has the keys to all those things as we're going to see later in Revelation. And so because of those things, he's victorious over there. And we see then that he's the firstborn, meaning that there are others to come. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth, especially important when we have guys like Caesar, right? What John is saying is, yeah, okay, you might have a golden crown and sit on a throne right now, but I know the guy who sits on the throne of thrones and who has the crown of crowns. And by the way, when we get there, we're going to cast ours down too. He also says here, to him who loves us and has freed us, from our sins, by his blood. He, he's telling us about salvation here. He's telling us that the only way is through Christ, his love. Nothing that we could do. It's because, it's John 3.16. Don't you think he knows his own text? I mean, come on. He's bringing us back to John 3.16 because he wrote that to begin with. Isn't it cool? And so John is saying here, and by the way, here's the other thing, right? Everybody thinks that uh, John will refer to himself sometimes as the one that Jesus loved. So this is paramount in John's mind. He's thinking, yeah, I know that Jesus loved me. I knew that when he was here, and I know that all the more now. And I'm told to write to the church, so I know he loves you. 
because he still wants to talk to you and still have a relationship with you, and he still wants to show you who he is in all his glory. And so he says he's the one who loves us and has freed us. The idea there is bondage and slavery from our sin, and how does he done this? By his blood. And then we see here, I don't have a cool S point for it, but what, what that has done for us and what he's doing for us and what he's doing in us and what he plans to do with us, which is this. He's made us a kingdom, priests to God his Father. And so he ends as we are going to this morning too. Unfortunately, we're not going to get to my last point. But he says, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so if you're a note taker, I won't leave you hanging. The guard in this book is the gospel of Christ. That's what guards the church through the book. That's what guards these seven churches in the book. That's what guards us as we experience the things that are going to happen in this book either right now currently or in the future or whatever kind of interpretation that you may have of that or, or whatever. It's the gospel of Christ that guards us and is the revelation of Christ that is the gravity of this book. And you'll have to come back next Sunday if you want the other half of this message for the third point. And then it's also going to be weird because it's not going to be enough time to do the whole thing, so then we'll start on the next sermon also. So welcome to Revelation. There's going to be a lot of sausage cuts in Revelation, just so you know. By the way, that's, a, that's an inside term baseball thing too. Like you, you make the sausage and you hack it off where it's supposed to be right, but sometimes you just got to cut the sausage off in other pot, spots and you have another sausage next week, I guess. I don't know. So uh, let's close in prayer. And then, uh, Marky, once we're done with prayer, can I have you pull the kids back up for communion? Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you again for this book. We thank you for the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ, uh, and how this book pulls back the, the curtain of heaven so that we can see Jesus as how he is meant to be seen and how we will one day in our perfect bodies, with our perfect eyes, when sin has been permanently removed from us, when we will one day be able to look upon him face to face. Oh, what a glorious day. We thank you for the gravity of this book, and we thank you for the guard of this book of your son who died for us, that we might be preserved as ones that have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Help us to glorify you in these truths. Help us to, to soak up and to sponge up all that is in this book that we are able to absorb. And as we read it throughout the week and, and uh we ask that you would ever increase more light, we pray, more light. It's in your name we do ask. Amen. All right. Marky's going to call uh, the kids up. And, uh, and so here's, uh, we're going we're gonna to invite the, the deacons and the elders up.